Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from John Hope Bryan, an accomplished author, entrepreneur, and the founder of Operation Hope. Operation Hope is the largest not-for-profit provider of financial literacy, financial inclusion, and economic empowerment tools and services in the United States. Today, John will share his thoughts on the economic challenges facing disadvantaged communities across America. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be able to introduce a very special guest speaker today. Uh, John Hope Bryant is an entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, and prominent thought leader on financial inclusion, economic empowerment, and financial dignity. John, most notably, is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope, Inc., the largest not-for-profit and best-in-class provider of financial literacy, financial inclusion, and economic empowerment tools and services in the United States. He's also the chairman and CEO of Bryant Group Ventures, and the Promise Homes Company, the largest for-profit minority-controlled owners of institutional quality, single-family residential rental homes in the United States. John runs a Facebook Live series, Silver Rights, which has received 40 plus million views and serves on an engaging platform for discussion around financial inclusion and social uplift. Additionally, he's a member of the founding class of the Forum of Young Global Leaders, and a founding member of the Clinton Global Initiative. He has served as an advisor to the last three sitting presidents from both political parties, you'll be glad to know. John has been named Innovator of the Year by American Banker Magazine, a runner, uh, honorable mention to the world's top 10 CEOs by Inc., and one of the 50 leaders for the future by Time Magazine. John Hope Bryant, thanks so much for being here today. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you, Howard, uh, uh, for that introduction and Liz and the team from uh, this incredibly important organization uh, and Nancy and abstention. Nancy hasn't taken a vacation in 9,000 years. And as I understand it, she's taking a bit of a break and she deserves every moment of it. Um, Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. Um, That's a quote from Ambassador Andrew Young who many of you should know was Dr. King's senior lieutenant in the civil rights movement, was on that balcony when he was assassinated, congressman, um, mayor of Atlanta, helped to turn Atlanta into international city, the only international city in the South, large economy in the South, Um, and um, just an international icon, UN ambassador. He's actually outside the door right now, relaxing as we're getting away for a week of wellness. Um, But that quote applies here. Um, I met Nancy on CNBC Squawk Box. Um, I was on CNBC, as I'll be on tomorrow morning, um, talking about um, the bipartisan legislation, the stimulus package, the first bipartisan piece, which you guys helped to do. Uh, No labels, uh, which I gave you credit uh, on air. Uh, This organization, broadly defined, helped to bring together uh, well-meaning people from both parties into what I call the get it done party, <laughs> to get some stuff done. And um, because of that, we were not only able to pass very important legislation, 
but we're also able to prove that we can work together, that we can get along with each other, uh, that we're all of God's children, that at the end of the day, it's not black or white or red or blue. Um, but if you want to be crude about it, it's how do we share some more green as in U.S. currency? How do we share some more prosperity for all? Um, and this country is the largest economy in the world, and we will only remain that way if we knock off the stupid stuff and figure out a way to, I mean, you never had a, you never had a world leader, um, an economic leader that wasn't, well, you never had a world leader, a sole superpower in the world that wasn't an economic leader. And the only way we're going to stay that way is to knock off the stupid stuff and to, to find a way to do what, no limits and no labels, or should I say no labels creates no limits, has been able to do. So I commend you all. And that's why when I was asked by Nancy when I speak, I said enthusiastically, absolutely, yes. I know several of your members, uh, both in the House and the Senate, um, and um, from both parties. Um, and, I've, and I've been honored to advise, as I said earlier, three presidents. Howard, thank you for your engagement today. Uh, your reputation precedes you. Um, I think we're sitting in a moment in history. And Liz, I assume I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk for a few minutes and then you tell me how long and then we'll do some Q and A. Um, but I don't want to ramble on, you know, you know, you never want to be the old guy in the club. So before you guys kick me out, I'm going to leave on my own. So uh, what, 20 minutes or so? It's up to you, 10, 15, 20, whatever you'd like. Right. And then we have questions lined up. Done. So let me say this. I think we're sitting in a moment in history, but history does not feel historic when you're sitting in it. It just feels like another day. But that doesn't mean that the moment we're in is not in fact historic. Um, from a credibility perspective, I'll let you guys do your own research, but I came from Compton, California, South Central Los Angeles, really in all likelihood should not be sitting here before you today. But America's not a country, she's an idea, and we can make her whatever we want. And I decided to make her my dream factory. Um, and luckily I had a mom who told me she loved me uh, and a dad who owned his own business. Um, who believed that anything was possible and poured that into me. Not everybody has been so lucky. And uh, I founded Operation Hope. I'll save you um, the story of that, but I may share my, a bit of my personal stories. I think it's contextually important. Well, I started Operation Hope because I think we needed to create a, a sustainable economic infrastructure for the sustainability of the bottom 50% of the society. And it does not exist. Um, and I don't know how we're going to continue to keep this miracle going unless we fix that. So what's the chances in 2020 we'd have a health pandemic that rivaled the Spanish flu, an economic crisis and a crisis of unemployment not seen since the Great Depression, a 400-year-old social justice reckoning on Black America. And a crisis of our basic democracy that, that, that displayed itself on January 6th at the Capitol, not seen since the siege of 1812, but those were British attacking us. These were Americans against America. What's the chances that all this would happen within an eight month period of time? Or is God trying to tell us something? The universe is trying to signal that it's time for a reset. And if we don't reset, we're going to get a reboot. 
that human beings are the only animal with a spirit and a consciousness capable of growth. And we're given dominion over all other animals. But what kind of a job are we doing? So I'm not here to give you a moral speech. Uh, I love math because it does not have an opinion. Um, I would love in the Q&A if somebody asked me to share, to share with you what I call 40 years and four minutes, how we got here. But I'm gonna assume that some of you know that already. So I'm not gonna go through that either. I'm gonna start with a solution. Um, Operation Hope, by the way, we have 100 million video views on that, Howard, on that series, that 40 million. Uh, and that's, so it's a lot of growth, even since you were last reported out to Operation Hope, has 4 million clients. Um, we've directed $3.5 billion of private capital into underserved neighborhoods, mostly from banks. We've raised credit scores 54 points in six months, 120 points in 24 months. And nothing quite changes your life more than God or love than moving your credit score 120 points. I'm joking, but I'm serious. Um, George Floyd was murdered in a 500 credit score neighborhood. I'm sure you've never been told that. All of the police shootings of Blacks in the last five years in neighborhood have been in 500 credit score neighborhoods. 90% of those who sieged on the Capitol on January 6th, who were mostly poor whites, uh, had financial challenges in their background. So whether you're black and brown, urban or white rural, what you see in your neighborhood is typically this, a check casher next to a payday loan lender, next to a rent on store, next to a title lender, next to a liquor store, next to a pawn shop, and a church down the street trying to make you feel a little bit better once a week so you don't go, we call my neighborhood, say my neighborhood, cray cray. <laughs> so you don't go absolutely nuts. The church is sort of your public therapist. Somebody said a couple of days ago to me, the world sort of needs financially illiterate people so that, so that somebody will pay full price. It's a really cynical view of looking at it, but it also has the convenience of being true. But it's not sustainable. What's sustainable is an environment where everybody has a, a chance to where their boat rises because of their own energy, their own efforts. So Operation Hope is what I created in 1992 after the Rodney King riots to be part of that change. We're in 26 states with 180 locations. Uh, we have 500 corporate partners. We changed federal policy four times or created it, including financial literacy as federal policy under George Bush, uh, emergency financial disaster policy under George Bush. Um, became the only not well we were the only nonprofit ever change a white a building on a white house campus under obama which is the treasury annex building which is now called the freedman's bank building which was named after former slaves who put every dollar they had in the freedman's bank in 1865 after the civil war so that's the credibility let me back up now i wrote two pieces in the last year one's called um the new marshall plan you can search for it online it's written and published by the milken institute and that's what the public sector can do uh, to lean into a framework that I believe is fitting for the day, which is a war plan. I'll say that slowly for those in the back of the room. I, I did not mistakenly say that. I believe we're at war. We're at war with the virus. Unfortunately, we're at war with each other, a cultural war. And the Bible said a house divided cannot stand. So those who are outside of this country who want to be us uh, I guess I can say it here, 
Russia, which is really not a threat unless we give, unless we arm them. They're too small of an economy to really hurt us, but they're good at being mischievous. And China, which is a threat, but are cheating at capitalism. And I wish them all the luck as long as they play fair. But they want to be us. They want our position in the world. And we are going to give it to them if we keep fighting with each other. Because again, the house divided cannot stand. So we're in a cultural war. And we also are at an economic war. I just mentioned it. China want, is at war, but not, it's not with bombs and bullets. They can't afford to destroy us. They just want to control us. And they want us to buy their stuff. And I can get into what I mean by that because not none of, none, of, none of what I'm saying is rhetoric. This is all based on undeniable math and facts. So what are we going to do about it is the question. And the stimulus bill that you guys helped to frame up, I think is a step in the right direction, but it has to be viewed as an investment and not as a, a, a band-aid for the amputated leg. It has to be viewed as an investment to do one thing and one thing only, unleash untapped human capital. I'll come back to that. So the new Marshall Plan. The thing I wrote last week that was published by Milken Review, different from Milken Institute, but same organization, is called the Third Reconstruction. And that's what the private sector can do um, to um, lean in to our current environment, to partner with the community and the government, uh, to create the systemic change that I think uh, that we need now. You're going to see as a result of this, new, this last stimulus package, a GDP approaching 9%. 9%. At the end, by the end of 2021, we haven't seen that kind of growth. It's beyond China's growth. We haven't seen that growth since 1950. What happened in 1950? Well, we were benefiting from the Marshall Plan and the GI Bill. So let me back up because I think maybe I do need to go a little bit further back in history. Uh, every time America has been in a in, stuck in a spot. It's been the poor and the strivers and the underserved that has saved this country. So the New Deal, uh, really, uh, many of your mainstream, then poor European immigrants, parents, grandparents, well, grandparents, great-grandparents, and maybe even great-great-grandparents came into this country and were not being treated well, weren't protected, so on and so forth. But the New Deal created a framework and an environment and an investment in them where they unleashed uh, some human capital uh, as a result of the Great Depression. And that really got triggered fully after World War II. So you had these public sector investments, the, the Great the New Deal, and then really apexing, apexing at the Marshall Plan, which was a GA, the GI Bill. Of course, we, the Marshall Plan outside the US created, you know, rebuilt Germany and Japan, uh, which are two of our greatest allies politically, economically, and policy-wise to this day, uh, but also uh, built the white middle class. Because the GI Bill gave the returning GIs, 98% of those receiving it were white and male, blacks unfortunately were left out, um, gave them a home, which allowed them to, a mortgage for new home, to build equity, to build wealth. As much education as they could shove down their throat, the ultimate liberator, uh, and, an apprenticeship for a job for the future. And we had this surge of higher education in this country as a result of that, and the growth of the middle class, the thriving group. That sustained this country uh, until it didn't. And now we have, um, the most conservative number is 41% of all 
American citizens today don't have a high school, I'm sorry, only have a high school diploma. That should put chills down your spine. That's really dangerous. People don't do critical thinking when they have a high school education. It's not that they don't want to, they can't. Um, they don't have exposure. They don't have the skills, the tools to compete. So now you have this bifurcated economy. You have the investment economy. And my guess is that that's many of us. And I say us because the color is not black, white, red, brown, or yellow, it's green. So those who have the access to information and are hanging with the right group are part of that investor economy that grew a trillion dollars in wealth in 2020. And then you have the working economy, which feels like it's in a recession right now. And they're extraordinarily frustrated and we can't do without them because 70% of this economy is consumer spending, which is where the GDP hit's gonna come this year. But what do we do next year? Uh, we, need, we, we have to rebuild our infrastructure. I see this as no different than building highways and freeways and roads and before that railroads. Um, uh, that will put high school educated people back to work for a decade. That's a good thing and it will sustain GDP. And, but we need more than that. We, we really need to reimagine this country uh, as a software upgrade we need for the next 100 years. What we do in the next 10 years, I think will matter for the next 100. I'm gonna stop now, make sure everybody's with me. I haven't gone too fast, too far. Because what I like to do is to go back uh, if it's okay, and do my 400, minute, 400 years in four minutes, if it's appropriate to give some context of sort of how we got here. Let me stop though. We okay? All right. So now that we're friends and we're family, and you know I'm not crazy, uh, uh, well, I am crazy enough to believe you can change the world positively. Let me now give you how we got here. 400 years in four minutes. Don't let me go more than four minutes to get passionate about the topic. Please don't let me go over four minutes. Somebody stop me. This world is about five billion years old. Four billion of that has had some kind of life on it. Uh, organisms. About 200 million years, you know, humans broadly defined. 200,000 years, humans that we can relate to. 60,000 years or so, North America, humans. Um, but in all that time, the word white was created in 1640-ish in North America. Before that, the word white was not a, a, a used term. It was class structure, your, your, your wealth, your position in the world. That's what gave you power all around the world. But in the 1600s, when I think it was 20 uh, servants hit Jamestown, Virginia, some of them black, some of them white, by the way. Europe had sent the uh, criminals, those who they consider criminals, to a penal colony. They call that Australia today. And they sent the poor whites, along with some aristocrats, read landowners, to America. The poor whites were given 50 acres each, and but were indentured servants. They had to work it off. So when they got to America, unfortunately for the, for the, land, for the landowners, the poor whites and the poor blacks start working together and like each other. This is a very important part of this story. They got along. They got along so well, they said, you know what, we really don't like this overseer very much. He's not being very nice to us. Let's get out of here. So they ran away with each other, the poor whites and the poor blacks. And when they were caught, the landowners said, we can't have this. They could overtake us. They destroy our, everything we're planning. So they put them on trial. They gave the poor white two more years of indentured servitude for running away. And they gave the black guy life. 
Same cry. That's what you call slavery. That was the beginning of slavery. And then they told, they told the white guy, hey, you're white like us. Not you're wealthy like us. This is, this is the value of education or the lack thereof. Not you're wealthy like us. Not you're a landowner like us. Because really, if you were a governor, it meant you own tens of thousands of acres. That's what that meant. <laughs> Just with a title on top of it. Not that you're wealthy like us. You're a landowner like us. You're privileged like us. You're titled like us. You're white like us. And the, the poor white guy said, oh, okay, what does that mean? That means you're in charge of the black guy. Oh, okay. So we've had now poor white people and poor black people at each other's throats for what? For 400 years over a lie. So now black people go to work. Now we're, what the black people are, is the, the premise is that we were somehow stupid. No, the, the, the economy back then was an agricultural economy. What was the biggest then and now, the biggest untapped reservoir of natural resources in the world, Africa. Where'd they go to get the those who, who work that land best? Africa. Who'd they get? Africans. The smartest, the strongest, and the prettiest. Smart. They brought them here. Those that got here had too much chutzpah, too much energy, too much attitude, too much confidence. So the, the, really the, 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 the vision was break the spirit, but don't break the body. So you fast forward. So the, the, here's, the, here's the promise of America. Work hard with these. And you'll get the benefit of your labor. Unfortunately, African-Americans work really hard with these. And the guy in the big house got the benefit of the labor for 300 years. So you don't have labor. So now you don't have dollars for investment. And you cannot create capital. Or you don't have capital, I'm sorry, to create an investment. Uh, and we could not create capital because we were capital. Bought, traded, insured, financed. OK, now fast forward. This goes on for 300 of our 450 years. <laughs> and we were the most valuable asset in this country in the 1840s. The richest city in the world, by the way, was Notches, Mississippi. Notches, Mississippi. You guys figure out what business they were in. <laughs> the word millionaire was created in 1850 in New York City, in America, through cotton trade. You can figure the rest out. So really, we created the wealth in this country, but we didn't participate in it. And up until 1930, the FHA, Federal Housing Administration, uh, would not allow the guarantee of a mortgage in a black neighborhood, which meant that the white neighborhood got the, the bank loan, the black neighborhood did not. So the same home has disproportionate value. It, but go back to 1865, I'm almost done. Uh, after Lincoln was, I'm sorry, Lincoln, the Civil War, Lincoln said, let's create a Freedmen's Bank to teach free slaves about money. Um, but let me back up to two to months from that. January 1865, he authorized Food Action 15 to give 40 acres to every freed slave that was in the Union Army. So not every person, just those in the Union Army. And just for the family, not individually like the poor whites got coming over, as I mentioned earlier. But that's okay. We were happy with that. Unfortunately, it was assassinated. And so we got 40 acres and a mule because we worked that land so hard. But the bank came in March called the Freedmen's Bank, chartered to teach free slaves about money. Lincoln was killed in April. I'm going really fast just so we can go to get to the Q&A. But I hope I'm not going so fast that I'm leaving you. We good so far? I'm just trying to make sense. Yeah. So January, so what, what Lincoln was trying to do was to give African-Americans finally the, Af the immigrant experience. Land of your own. We worked that land really hard. A mule, which was like a tractor back then. Then a place to domicile your savings, the Freedmen's Bank. Then hopefully loan against your holdings so that you could reinvest in your property. And unfortunately, Lincoln promised the right to vote. Booth said that's the bridge too far and assassinated him in April, April 4th, 68, I believe, 1865. April, Frederick Douglass tried to run the bank. 
you know him as, as an abolitionist. I know him as a businessman that owns $6 million with a real estate in Baltimore, Maryland. You can, there's a marker in Baltimore now if you want to go see it. That gave him the financial freedom to be a, a civil rights leader. He tried to, lead, to, to run the bank, to stay in it, put $10,000 of his own money into it. Unfortunately, the weight of hypocrisy and criminality was too heavy, and he had no stakeholder, Lincoln, anymore, and the bank failed in 1874. That bank was chartered to teach free slaves about money, financial literacy. We never learned it. No one ever gave us a memo on money, free enterprise, capitalism, economics, and ownership. So fast forward today, what are three groups left out of this great American plan? Poor whites, Native American Indians, and African Americans. Every other group has found a way to use capitalism and free enterprise to come up. So that's my 400 years and four minutes. It's just math and it's just common sense. What we need to do now, and I wrote this re third reconstruction, you can read it. The Citigroup report recently issued showed that discrimination against blacks alone in the last 20 years, not the last 200 years, the last 20 years cost America $16 trillion in lost GDP, trillion. That's a levy and a tax on all of us. So I think that the way we come up now is to take the bookends of what I've written called the Marshall Plan, but they can call it whatever they like. Just take, in fact, there's a little bit in the stimulus package from what I wrote, like the earning of tax credit piece. It's a living wage for all. We can do that without taxing uh, business, which has been the real uh, complaint, business and, and um, job creators, small businesses. You can do that without taxing them. A living wage for all, I can answer that question if somebody's interested. Uh, financial literacy for all, a bank account for all, education for all, which I believe is a, not a debt, but is really an investment in this country because the only way you come up, as I mentioned earlier, is everybody's educated. There are investments, public, pur public purpose capitalism. There are investments that the public can make, the public side can make that actually spur GDP on the other side, which is the examples I was giving about the, the loosely defined new, new Deal and more defined, the Marshall Plan, that I think we should be doing now at scale because 90% of all jobs come from the private sector and 100% of all legitimate wealth comes from the private sector. But the groups that I'm talking about are not prepared to really participate in the private sector, either on the jobs part or on the wealth creation part. And that's not only immoral, it's bad business for the country. So it's not a discussion about morals and money, it's a discussion of morals and money. And, and so we've just launched a, I'm about to stop, I'm about to stop I'm sorry, I'm really getting tired of hearing myself talk, but I, we're, we've just launched a uh, initiative with Shopify Steve uh, uh, simply just put a link to I think uh, a couple of things I've talked about in the in the chat. But Shopify committed 130 million dollars to Operation Hope to create a million new black businesses over 10 years. Uh, taking what I'm saying seriously, because 96 percent of all black businesses in this country don't have an employee. Let, let, let me let that sink in for a minute. There are 30 million businesses in this country. 2.6 million are black, give or take. We all, I've just said, the royalty in this country is business, small business and medium-sized business. That's royalty in this country. We create celebrity in this country because we didn't have royalty. We wanted something to bling about. So we, we literally created the concept of celebrity in North America. So business is celebrity. Business is our royal class. So black, that's where jobs creation comes from and wealth creation comes from. But black businesses don't have employees, 96% of them. And they're mostly offline. They, again, never got the memo on money, but we're really smart. When is ever a space like the arts, as in creative arts, or in, or the professional sports where the rules are published and the playing field is level, we excel. We kill it. 
but we've never been given the rule book in free enterprise and capitalism. That's what I'm trying to do at scale, to create a sustainable economic platform for underserved, for the bottom 50% of this country, um, which I believe is good for the entire country. Essentially, the work that Dr. King would be doing today if he was alive, I believe, is social justice through an economic lens. So from a public policy perspective, we need apprenticeships for all at scale and a tax structure that rewards businesses. Uh, internships for all at scale gives kids a reason to want to graduate from high school. Otherwise, what's the point? Because no one wants to eat their vegetables because they're good, right? You got to give anybody a reason to do the right thing. Financial literacy is boring. Education is uninterested unless you connect it to aspiration. Uh, a, a living wage for all. Uh, I, again, I'll get into that in a more intentional way. Uh, wealth creation for all, i.e. this initiative we're doing with Shopify to create a million new black businesses that are online. So I want to essentially I want to get all black businesses into e-commerce. Financial literacy for all is something I think that hopefully no labels would find interest in. I don't want to get ahead of my some of my partners, but there's some very big names that'll be coming out with me next month during Financial Literacy Month, April, in an initiative that, that we are loosely calling Financial Literacy for All, with some of the biggest names in business in this country saying enough is enough. It's time to coach up our employees, to provide a private banker to the average American working citizen, uh, to give financial literacy K through college, because we live in an economic democracy with no one's teaching us how money works. Um, and corporate inclusion for all, but again, I'll leave that aside. I'm going to stop now because I know that talking to me is like getting a glass of water out of a fire hydrant. Uh, but I wanted to, to basically say to you that I have material hope. In other words, I'm not, I'm, I'm a dreamer with a shovel in my hands. I really believe that what we do in the next 10 years, and I think the third reconstruction is the next 10 years between now and 2030. Um, and Liz, I can get in, Liz and Howard, I can get into the third reconstruction. What I mean by that, if it's important, that sort of glossed over it. But I think that we are living in a moment in history, I'll end where I started, between now and 2030. And what we do in the next 10 years matters for the next 100. And I think that no labels and, and God bless Nancy and the team. I don't know what what got injected in her to try to be a force for good. But I love it. To quote, my friend, quote my friend Chelsea Clinton. I, I, I would tell Nancy, let's, let's go get caught trying to do good. Uh, she No good deeds, she'll go and punish. I don't know what motivates her, but God bless her for trying. She gets no credit for it, but I personally appreciate her and Liz and the whole team there for what you do. Um, I'll stop. I'll be happy to, to unpack the third reconstruction if you think that's important, or I'll take questions. Well, John, uh, we have a list of questions, and we better uh, answer them concisely if we're going to get through them. But uh, before I turn to the list, I'd like to ask you what specific things, if there are any, you would like to see in the infrastructure uh, bill that's going to be uh, brought up this year? Unleashing human capital, which means we have to, we have to get the average education level in this country well above high school and I think in, at least in a two-year education with a skill. Um, I don't think you need a four-year college degree, but you need a two-year education with a skill. Otherwise, we will not be able to compete not only in this country, but we want to compete around the world. And I think that has to be part of infrastructure. I think that uh, internships are, I think that we should be, there should be a, a very intentional tax 
um, incentive for corporate and business entities to bring on, I don't mean hundreds or thousands, millions of young people who are at the moment either out of school or out of college with a little motivation to return if you're from neighborhoods I grew up in. Got to give them a reason to go back to school and to graduate. If you graduate with a B plus or better, you get an internship, preferably a paid internship to work in the private sector, community or government. Um, and because working in a office building changes your life, working in a corporate or business environment, all the lights come on. My niece, who my sorry, my goddaughter, um, when she was 20 years old, asked me, could she come work, uh, Howard, in my office building? And, and I just arrogantly assumed she'd always, you know, what, why? You're my, well, my, you're my, my goddaughter. She said, John, I've never been in an office building. I've never been in an elevator. Oh. Howard, I was ready to fall out. What do you mean you never, you're 20 years old. John, I grew up in South Central LA. Why would I be in an elevator? There's no office buildings in South Central LA. Why would I be in, in a, why? What, where, I never had a business car, she said. I never had a dress on, uh, not, you know, business dress. I've never, I've never been in a business environment. Been, why, why would I? And so I gave her an internship and that environment of being in a corporate environment, well, not only it changed her life, her confidence it gave her relationship capital. Now she knows somebody. I mean, if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th, essentially is what I'm saying. Whoever you hang around is who you'll be. So we need, we need to repair the ladder of aspiration. Yeah. And that repairs, that helps to repair income and wealth inequality gap by giving people a ladder up. So I think apprenticeships, internships at scale, that's my number one idea. And that's a tax incentive or a tax break for corporations who bring internships at scale and apprenticeships also. I think this is a huge thing that has to happen. I would tie into that for those who are working who make $60,000 a year or less, Howard, and that is most Americans. I tie to that a living wage for all. What I mean by that is this, you have the earning of tax credit now. I know there's a little bit of this in the current bill, but EITC, earning of tax credit, applies to everybody who makes $60,000 a year or less. If you make $25,000 a year right now um, and you have three children, the federal government owes you $6,700 cash. If you have not filed retroactive in three years, that's 18, 19 grand. You add that plus a two or three thousand dollar per child tax credit tax credit, that's 20, you basically double your income. But one out of four Americans who qualify for EITC never asked for it because they don't have a financial planner, they don't have a tax person. That you what you don't know that you don't know. And and so you unless you file for it proactively, you can't get it. So you need a financial coach for every American to allow to help them understand the, the things that they're actually qualified for. But I think that we should embed EITC literally into transfer payments. I think that the average American is depressed. They feeling like the, the people say, oh, I hate rich people. No, you don't. You hate rich people until you become rich. What they, what they hate is a game system. They don't think they can succeed like that person can. But if we can give the average working person a tax break, a, a bonus for working like they see Wall Street getting, the resentment goes away. And the way you pay for it is you spread the call for the, of this EITC across all Americans, this bonus for working that you get if you make $60,000 a year or less, don't put on the burden of business. We won't fill it, but the economy will. So if you spread it across all Americans, we won't fill it. It'll be pennies on the dollar, but the economy will get a surge and the resentment will begin to dissipate because now you're giving people a living wage. So EITC for all embedded in the system along with a bank account for all at birth. Bank account at birth, 
EITC for making for those makes three thousand dollars a year or less. Um, as a, that is embedded into the system. Internships for all for those who get a B or better out of high school. Apprenticeships for all. We can talk about that later. The the what would qualify, but that's for older adults. Uh, I think that those things as a in financial literacy for all. I, that was sort of oh, I'm sorry, my presumption. K through college financial literacy education. Those are human capital infrastructure pieces. And I guess financial coaching for all is part of financial literacy for all. That I think you'd see a two to three percent pop in GDP. You combine that with what you already know, roads, bridges, you know, that are falling apart and physical infrastructure. Um, and uh, I think you've got a ball game for the resetting of America. Great, thank you, thank you. Now I'll turn to the list of questioners. Uh, let's see. Uh, the first question is from uh, Tom McInerney. Oh, Tom, <laughs> I, I love Tom, CEO yeah, of a great uh, company. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Howard. And, and just for full disclosure uh, to John, I've been a no labels trustee for many years and I go back with John and Operation Hope into the 1990s and I was working for Aetna and we had an opportunity to ask uh, President Clinton when he's president, who, who is the best uh, in diversity and inclusion and financial literacy? And he said, John Hope Bryan and John had just founded Operation Hope and LA. He's since moved to Atlanta. But my, my so I, you know, I, I'm glad to to have you here, John. Thanks for your comments. But uh, I, with COVID nineteen and and all of the challenges for K through twelve uh, and not being at school, and, and you've been working on financial literacy in K through twelve for a long time. But I, I just want to get your your sense of how far back how far backwards we may have gone. And uh, you know, we try to work with. Uh, Republicans and Democrats, as you know, on bipartisan solutions. And while this is more of a state and local in education, I do think there may be some opportunities at the federal level. So do you have a view as to how problematic the last year or so has been with uh, not in-person classes? And and, I, and on your Operation Hope, uh, the, all the work that you do, has that really taken a step back and how can we get it back on track? Great question, Tom. Thanks for being uh, with us and contributing. And at some point, I want somebody to ask me about the third reconstruction, give an excuse to talk about that. I think that wraps around the whole conversation. Um, try to do this succinctly, answer your question. Um, the problem is um, the, the challenge is not trying to repair a year um, because these groups were already in a crisis before crisis hit. Most of the families that are affected in the working class, their children were getting their only stable meal from school, Title I schools. Um, their social skills, their software upgrade was coming from school, the ability to compete in society because they don't have relationship capital they can pull from. They don't have, like you and me, Tom, somebody can call, they can call to say, can I get an internship at your business while I'm off of school? Or, there's something else I can do. Can I work at the golf course or whatever uh, on the COVID free time that uh, limited schedule so on and so forth. They don't have that. So they're, so unfortunately now the streets have caught, uh, caught them or, um, you know, video games or whatever they were distracted with, but they have drifted back, uh, probably lost three to four years of social advancement. I'll give you one additional thing. If you, uh, if you or you and me 
we became more efficient in 2020. So Operation Hope, Tom, has done this. Um, but I am digitally connected. So I know you. When I, I, don't need, I don't need to go to your secretary. I don't need to meet you at a conference. I know you, so we can just get on and talk about business or whatever. But if you are the salesman in America, and most people are salespeople to try to get in the suite, you need the conference. You need the schoolhouse. You need the public. I ran into you on the street. You need that, that human capital experience of run, uh, in order to bridge the gap uh, of inequality, even to begin that. This digital divide, literally of COVID, literally broke that apart. So now you have folks, to quote Dr. King, moving at jet-like speed, you and me, in, in, in being efficient in business. It zooms, we're zooming so much, we're going crazy. But those who are outside of this digital technology field loop are literally, to quote Dr. King, working at, running at horse and buggy pace. Uh, these communities are not internet connected um, on top of that. Um, they don't have the best infrastructure or any infrastructure in many cases. Again, they don't have the relationship capital um, uh, that allows you and I to engage. Again, Nancy was able to reach, reach me directly. She sent me an email and see me on CNBC. How many people can do that? She said she was two. She was two people away from being able to reach me. You know, John, can you put me in touch with her? So you have really two separate worlds, Tom. You have, if you hang around nine rich people, you'll be the tenth. If you hang around nine poor people, you'll be the tenth. And these worlds are getting bigger and disconnected. The, the the 2020 has helped to move us into a digital environment. I think we're going to get back into a combination of digital and physical. But the digital is not going to go away. That's it's a new way to shop, new way to live, new way to connect. And if, and if you want to not deal with society, you don't have to. Anymore. So this group has just gotten much a, a much tougher road than they had before. Um, and so I, mean, I hope I answered you. I'm, I, I could go I could go on that forever, but I, I, it, it is a it is a tough situation. But also, rainbows only follow storms. Maybe we, we cannot have a rainbow without maybe a storm. Maybe going back to Howard's question, maybe on the infrastructure bill. I think there's a lot of focus on broadband and rural communities, but maybe there also ought to be in inner city schools and 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 part of that to to help uh, have uh, the minorities and others uh, some way to catch up. But thanks for your answer, and it's great to see you again. And I'm mutual. And by the way, we should also include uh, Tom an introduction to entrepreneurship class in high school for particularly underserved urban and rural neighborhoods because there are no skyscrapers there. There are no businesses to go get hired from. So if you can't get a job, we need to help create people create jobs. We have lost entrepreneurship and small business creation as a primary way to come up in this country. And that is a central business plan to this country. It is the, it is the gold standard in this country. Um, and, and we should be encouraging people from these underserved neighborhoods to do just that. Let me say they see something controversial. What do we think a drug dealer is? If not an illegal, unethical entrepreneur, they understand import, export, finance, marketing, wholesale, retail, customer service, security, territory, logistics. I can go on and on and on. Bad business plan, bad role. I'm not, it's disgusting. It's horrible. They should go to, if, if anybody say death in their own community, it's just, but what they are not is dumb. But they, but 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 if you grew up in the inner city and you don't and you're disconnected the way Tom we're talking about, who are your role models? 
they're, they're doing common sense. You model what you see. Drug dealers, rap stars, and athletes. There are no office buildings. There's no entrepreneurs. There's no business owners. So they're modeling what they see. But we need to remember that NASCAR came from moonshine running before we start judging. NASCAR came from moonshine running. But they realized that was no long-term business in that. They, but they were good at driving. So that's where NASCAR came from. If Steve Jobs had been adopted not by the Jobs family in the Silicon Valley, but by a single parent household in rural Arkansas or in the south side of Chicago, he'd have become a drug dealer, a brilliant one, versus the founder of Apple. We have got to watch the seeds that we plant things in. And we've got to start turning, well, a saint is a sinner that got up. We've got to turn all this talent into the GDP and potential with this country. People need hope with a business plan attached to it. So I think that this is the this is the 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 this is the bench strength for the playoff games of the rest of our lives. Those who are in middle school and high school are the bench strength for the playoff games of the rest of our lives. And 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 I think there's no more important conversation than getting them skilled up and making them hopeful again. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn to Pamela Humphrey for the next question. Well, I tell you, uh, speaking of hope, you you're well named. Um, I just, uh, wow, is all I can say. Thank you for being with us. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, have you spent any time taking a look at the opportunity zones that Trump created with uh, Tim Scott and how are those working? Um, do you think that those have some, uh, if that's a, some vehicle? Um, the other thing is the uh, vocational schools when we in the 60s went to every child needs to, needs a four-year education. Um, it forced schools, uh, high schools in particular, because for, st for uh, stats, uh, to not encourage people to go to um, vocational schools. And we've taken our our uh, eye off that goal. And I think they're I think it's critical that we rebuild them. And I know Trump uh, talked about that a lot. Uh, what is your view of that, um, and how, how do you think the Opportunity Zones are working or can work uh, towards what you are laying, laying out and doing in your life? Yeah. So folks forget that um, affirmative action was created by Nixon, <laughs> um, that the Minority Business Development Agency was created by Nixon. Nixon did a lot of things wrong, but he did a couple of things right, and we should give him credit for the things that he did right even as we criticize him for the things that he did wrong. Um, uh, I think that um, Opportunity Zones has great potential. Unfortunately, intention does matter. And I don't know many people in the inner city who know somebody who has a capital gains problem. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it to you. <laughs> um, a, a lot, it, I think it's, uh, Ogilvy, I think I'm saying it's right. He gets what I'm saying. I see it. I can see him. It's nodding his head. I, I just don't know many. Again, relationship capital. I don't know many people in the hood. The hood. D a hyphen h o d. Who know people who have a capital gains problem? Hey yo, can you come over here? Let me. Let's let's work up. Let's get some capital over here and open the call center, or whatever. So what's going to happen is people who have a development problem and a cost of funds problem and an access. To, they're trying to do a deal anyway. And they find that the deal they're doing is technically in a in a in a opportunity zone. You'll find if you do an analysis, those are the most the deals that would have done got it done anyway got done with sweeter uh, with a, with a sweeter potential because folks who who had the capital 
the relationship capital and the knowledge and access to capital did the deal. But I'm not sure it, it really benefited thus far those for whom it was so-called intended. I do believe that opportunity zones, if we reset it, no different than PPP had to be reset. And I was one of the people right. helping to craft PPP. So by the way, I want to commend the truck, the, uh, the Treasury Department, I have a lot of complaints about the last administration. I was not an advisor to that administration at the presidential level, but I did work very closely with the Treasury Department, who I thought was brilliant. I thought they did a really good job. And I worked with them. And um, and PPP uh, actually helped, did a lot of good, but even it had to be upgraded, uh, I think two or three times to, to make sure it was hitting its intended goal. So I think that we need a software upgrade on Opportunity zones. You need. You also need to combine that community risk investment action. Then you have equity and debt that is focused on these neighborhoods and rapid with financial coaching and financial literacy and the reasons I mentioned uh, earlier. Um, uh, and and then overlay that with an obsession on small business creation and entrepreneurship from the bottom up. And I think that you might have a game plan uh, to to direct possibly a few hundred billion dollars into these underserved neighborhoods, both black and brown, urban and white, rural, I might add, because they all have the same problem, to create the kind of growth that we were talking about earlier, which is two to 3% of GDP. But right but right now it's not well positioned and it hasn't been well positioned. Well, that's too bad uh, because it is an opportunity. That, well, what about occasional schools? Are you Dead working right. 100%. With, um, school and, with school boards and school districts to try to get more focus on that and curriculums in the schools about the very things you're talking about literacy and so I want to uh, literacy and the rest of it. So I, what is your name again, young lady? Uh, Pamela Humphrey. Uh, if I can call you Pamela. Yeah, that's uh, fine. So Pamela, I love what you're saying, strictly about the trade schools. So Greg, and I'm going to go back to Tom and connect with what you're saying for a second. So I have a company called the Promise Homes Company. It's the largest minority-controlled owner of single-family rental homes in America. The, I only say that to say when I bought the company, it had 7% minority. It, this is why intention so matter, matters so much. It had 7% minority than seven. Now the company, which has grown at 300% in three years, has 58% minority vendors. This is not philanthropy. This is not charity. These are plumbers, to your point, plumbers, electricians, lighting, landscaping, roofing, all the stuff you need to rehab and maintain homes. So I'm kicking millions of dollars a year of, of living wage and, and attractive contracts to minority-owned and women-owned businesses in what I call, what you might call sustainable philanthropy. And these folks have a trade. That trade's not going out of style, right? I mean, uh, all of you guys are looking for carpenters and contractors as you were stuck in your houses and painters and, and HVI, HVAC people. You couldn't find them. You pay you pay any kind of money to get a, a quality vendor in your house uh, as you were stuck in at home. Can I get an amen? Uh, I see some some nodding heads of people who know what I'm talking about. You're trying to get uh, a, yeah. So these are these are skills that will never go out of style, and we should be doubling down on them. And as I my experience is, is where my company is is that was the way I was able to actually endow these communities with uh, with sustainable wealth. Uh, a positive wealth transfer that didn't hurt my business, actually helped my business and helped community at the same time. Uh, just imagine if every business in America did 20% of their contracting with minority and women-owned and underserved business, uh, businesses or entities uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a goal and, and with a, a focus on those who have trade 
marketable trade skills like you're talking about. Tom McInerney um, mentioned something that you mentioned also that this stuff happens at the local level. Actually, respectfully, it's not true. The Department of Education does not create curriculum. You all know that. What they are is a funding agency. How did we get Al Capone? Was it murder and mayhem? No, it was tax evasion. Everything comes back down to money. So this Department of Education incentivizes school districts through money. All we have to do is direct the Department of Education to do challenge grants around financial literacy, trade trade schools and things like that. And you'll find school districts get remarkably interested. Cities, states, counties get remarkably interested in these topics when it, it's not viewed as an unfunded mandate. Uh, it's really, it yeah. just comes down to, to economics. I'm sorry, I did a step with somebody. Yeah. Well, are you focusing on that at all? I mean, yes. I mean, yes. you've got a whole soapbox here that's pretty powerful. So everything I'm telling you, I'm doing. Right. <laughs> um, you read the, Love it. Yeah. yeah. If you read the Love third it. reconstruction, which just came out, you'll see we are okay. with the one million black business initiative is is like you can go to one mbb right now hope one mbb.org and you can sign on to become part of our time bank you can sign on to help us create black businesses you can sign on to be a partner we're doing that right now financial literacy for right. all that launches next month but we're you know uh the corporate inclusion project uh we're doing that right now i mean obviously i'm not a policymaker, so some of this stuff i, I can only encourage which is why i'm talking to this group and others um, I'm meeting with Senator Warnock, uh, uh, his chief of staff. He's a dear friend of mine. I think next week, um, and and anybody else who wants to talk to try to encourage the public sector side of this. Next question from Maxine Clark. Thank you, and thank you, uh, John. It's wonderful to meet you, and uh, you have a partner here in St. Louis, Missouri. I've been trying to do all the things that you're doing, but applying it to St. Louis and. One thing I would say to the group here is that there are many, many organizations that are already structured, like Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, that is in every Black high school in St. Louis, and I imagine it's in many, many cities where you all operate, that is teaching kids. That some of the businesses that they come up with is ab are absolutely phenomenal, um, and they do it in, in just weeks, let alone um, years or months, and uh, I'm just really impressed. But one of the things that I do, and I know why Shopify is doing this, I think it's a good reason is because so many young black entrepreneurs are, are creating and I'm an investor and mentor to about 15 of them, consumer products businesses, they know what's missing in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And if I mark my investment to market, I would be a very, very even more successful person. They, these companies are doing great. So if anybody feels it's a risk, I would tell you, um, it's not. It's a, there are customers out there with the money to spend who want to buy these products, and these young people know what's been missing from their marketplace, and they're creating it, whether it's products that they're bringing from Africa or products that they're making here in America. The cosmetic industry is one really huge one, and I know a lot of investors in this group don't look at those kind of businesses. You're thinking about technology. You're thinking about all these very, very sophisticated and you know, high-tech businesses, but customers want to buy stuff, and stuff generates cash. And that's why I can say what I'm saying, because they're generating cash. They're actually not in the market so much for private equity or, or venture capital. They don't want anybody else to own their business. They're trying to build their own generational wealth. And I think part of the financial literacy we have to teach them is how to have a, a small piece of a big pie. You know, that's what I did when I started my company. I knew that I wanted to make it big and I didn't I, I was OK with having a smaller piece than 100 uh, percent. But I wanted to ask you a question. I read a study today from. Um, McKinsey 
about COVID and the learning loss during COVID. And of course, everything impacts um, poor children, uh, particularly black and Latino children more than it impacts anybody else. And one of the things that they talk about there is how much earning loss, not learning, learning loss translate into earning loss because we have to catch these kids back up and they weren't necessarily caught up in the first place. What do you think we could do in the short term, if there is a short term answer, and maybe there isn't one, just to get kids back, those kids that are still in school, middle and high school especially, who are going to be closer to the workforce, to get them back up, to get them inspired, to, to erase this year of terror, of terror and uh, terrible and you know, emotional as well as learning loss, um, to get them back up so that people are looking at them as they have a potential um, to, to reach great things. I'm worried some of the ones that were on track for college may not be on track for college or, or on track for the scholarships that they originally thought they might have, uh, whether it was sports and academic or just academic. Um, any ideas on how we might uh, bridge that gap? I mean, first of all, God bless you. I love everything you said about what I call the James Brown version of affirmative action. Open the door, I'll get it myself. Uh, you are giving people, you're teaching folks how to fish at scale and getting a proper return on it. And you're right, Shopify rightly so saw a market. They, they said, shoot, black people spend a trillion dollars a year with a T. <laughs> uh, we're great spenders and we're great salespeople also. We just were never trained up to be business people, as I mentioned earlier. And so if Shopify can help to get us trained up uh, and into the marketplace and on, and on e-commerce, who do we think benefits from that? I mean, I, they, they have a good heart and I, and I love them, but they didn't commit $130 billion, $30 million just out of goodness of their heart. They did it because they thought it was a great market for them. By the way, rightly so. Uh, somebody asked me, I was on a black interview, black media interview, what's the catch? I said, the catch is that the lawyer who's giving you two hours of free consulting and the accountant giving you two hours of free consulting and the business manager and the banker giving you two hours of free consulting and our time bank on 1MBB, 1 million black business, uh, and Shopify giving you the free license for four months, and the payment systems and uh, all that stuff, uh, this e-store front. They want you to be successful so that you actually pay them in two years for what they're investing in with you now. Uh, so th- I, think it's, uh, I think it's just a radical movement of common sense and more people need to do it. And please make sure you get, uh, get in touch with me. I think we need to take my internship idea tie it all the way down to transfer payments. So if you're on unemployment right now and you want additional unemployment benefits, you got to show uh, that you've got a stake in the game on your sustainable education. Uh, and, and as long as you do that, you can continue to receive that. If you're a young person and you want to receive additional benefits uh, and you're in middle school or high school, or maybe a benefit, by the way, a financial benefit, then you've got to go to school and get an internship. And if you go to school, I think these kids, if you want to make sure you want to drop, you want to break the dropout rate in this country, give kids a paid internship out of school. It, it solves the broad problem. All kids want, want, want going to school is a job um, and a living wage opportunity, uh, a shot at it. So I think by this massive, this really is reimagining this idea of internships at scale is a way to get kids, because right now kids are going, why am I going to go to school? For what? What's in it for me? Uh, so I'll tell you this quick story. We taught, we taught a million kids financial literacy at Operation Hope, four million clients total. So this young man named Derek, we're in Detroit. He's 12 years old. He goes through our coursework, Banking on Our Future, called Now Hope Inside for Kids. And he graduates. And by the time he graduates, he's wearing the suit that the banker, the volunteer banker is wearing. He wants to emulate the banker. 
He's walking down the hallway. His friends say, man, why are you in that suit? That suit's stupid. You need to be like us. So I go to him and say, his friends say, look, we'll give you each 70 bucks. Make a decision about Nike. Try to distract them. The, the two friends said, oh, that's easy. We're going to buy some Air Jordans. What you need another 30 bucks. Derek says, I want to buy a share of Nike stock. The friends jump on Derek. Hey, man, that's stupid. Why would you want to buy some Nike stock? That's stupid stock. You need some Air Jordans. Everybody in school's got Air Jordans. Purple Air Jordans, future Air, Air Jordans, leather Air Jordans, striped Air Jordans. This is a culture issue that we're really fighting in this country. Uh, you got to say Air Jordans. I go to defend Derek's honor. Derek says, no, 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 no. It's cool. I want them to buy those shoes. <laughs> because when they do, they're making me money. Derek, there's a difference between being broke and being poor. Being broke is economic. Being poor is a disabling frame of mind, a depressed condition of their spirit. You must vow never to be poor again. What we have in this country is a, half this country is depressed. They, they've lost the, you have a winning mentality. Those are folks who came in this country, integrated well, for whatever. I want to build something. You have a thriving mentality. That's the middle class. You have a surviving mentality. Those are folks who are either protesting and don't believe in this, this country's future or attacking, including the capital, and don't believe uh, that this country is speaking to its original premise or whatever the excuse or problem is. But it's the problem is that they have a surviving mindset. And that's the person who's an expert in what they're against, not what they're for. And the only way this country works is if people are hooked on freedom. It doesn't work anywhere else. You know, you're hooked on freedom, hope, and a sense of your aspirational opportunity. We're living in an economic democracy, and we need, to, we need to knock it off and understand that that's what we're dealing with. And by the way, half of Black folks have a credit score below 620. So you have the greatest business idea on the planet. But unless you have a set on a credit score, you're not getting a business loan. So you all, you, 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 the, the problems are not overwhelming. They're not, I mean, literally, I know this sounds crazy, but if you just raise your credit score 100 points across this country, you'll solve most of your social problems. And it's not about the credit score. It's about the trending indicator of hope and well-being and all things we're talking about. So I think you've got to bring aspiration down to that middle school student and make it practical to them or that high school student and make it practical to them. Um, and I think that now is a time that we can do that because we're reimagining everything. Again, we're at war. This is a, we need a war plan. But if we do this right, we'll come out of this stronger than we, where we than we went into it. And you'll pay off the debt through something called increased tax revenue. <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Uh, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time. We're, we're just past eight, and uh, so I want to thank you, John, for that uh, that. Uh, uh, sharing all that information and your optimism and your ideas and and uh, uh, we'll try our best to uh, make sure that as much as possible is in whatever bill comes out. Howard, can I say one last thing before I wrap? Sure, please do. And uh, and Howard, thank you for trying to control me. <laughs> um, uh, let me leave you with this. The first reconstruction was really about trying to get folks from the from the fields was from the farms to the fields. The second reconstruction was trying to get people from the fields and the farms to the factories. The second, the third reconstruction is trying to get people from the mean streets into the business suites. This is social justice through an economic lens. I cannot say it hopefully any clearer than that. 
We have got to realize that color is not red or blue. It's not black or white. If we all come together and say the color is green, shared economic prosperity for all, we can all agree on that. And we will solve our problems together, raise GDP, raise hope, and raise a country again that becomes the envy of the free world. Thank you all for your time. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast. Thank you.